Hello, and welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast, a sonic journey through the vibrant and revolutionary sounds of the 1980s and 1990s. In this podcast, my co-host Rob and I will dive deep into the era of new wave and alternative music, exploring the infectious beats, introspective lyrics, and groundbreaking experimentation that defined a generation and left an indelible mark on the music landscape. Join us as we unravel the stories behind the music that shaped an era. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori, and I'm really excited to introduce to you our new co-host. Rob, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody out there in the newfangled technological radio land. I am Rob. I am your new co-host, as she just told you, so you already knew that. So who am I? Where am I from? I live in Southeast Michigan. I was a professional disc jockey for 25 years doing weddings, parties, and such. I have run two online internet radio stations, both based around classic alternative music. And I currently do a private little show for some friends of mine, sometimes on Friday nights, called the VCR Flashes Midnight Gen X Unlimited. I hope that's enough. Oh, that's fantastic. Am I qualified? You got the job. I mean, I can go. I, I went to Juilliard. I graduated Harvard Business School. I lived through the Black Plague, and that was a pretty good time. You are so full of shit. Ah, she's on to me. I am, I am. Okay, well, Rob, thank you so much for stepping in and doing this, especially on such short notice. But I am so excited to have you on board. And I, I am honored, honored, honored that you asked me. Well, thank you. And just so everybody knows, Rob is the king of the obscure music. I mean, he can pull tracks that, like, I only vaguely remember hearing once back in, like, 1983 three you know or like b-sides and all kinds of really rare stuff so uh, i really am thrilled for what he's going to bring to the show and we have another announcement to make do you want to talk about international podcasting you you have been talking to the curator a little more than i have that's true i've only been a participant on the outside in the past okay all right well Rob and I are going to be participating in a live video webcast for International Podcast Day, which is taking place on Saturday, September 30th. Now, I've posted a link to our Facebook page. So find us on Facebook, Accelerated Culture Podcast, or I'll also throw the link in this episode description, I think. You do have to register for tickets, but it's free. So this is an all-day event. It runs from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And, Rob, you and I have the very last time slot of the day, which is 8.30 to 9 p.m. Isn't that beautiful? All those people have to go before us, and then we just have to come out and end it on the highest note you can possibly imagine. Well, they're like our opening act, right? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. We, are, we are the big name on the festival. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So um, Rob and I are already at work. Since it's going to be a video podcast, which is not something we normally do, we're going to have some music videos that we're going to be talking about. I think we're going to be talking about our favorite 80s music videos. Yeah. 
we are sticking to alternative, of course, because of who we are. Yes, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. otherwise, you know, I'm going to load up on Debbie Gibson videos the whole way through. So, great, <laughs> great. Okay, so this online event is being organized by a gentleman named Jeff Revia, who is the host of the Stuff I Never Knew Trivia Game Show podcast. So we want to thank him for bringing us on board for this. And uh, boy, that's a hell of an event for you to cut your teeth on there, huh? I've known Jeff. I did this once before. I was a contestant on another podcast that was a game show. And so I wasn't in charge that time, but it was a ton of fun. Jeff is a great guy. It's going to be a really good time. So don't miss it. It's going to be awesome. And we're already picking some great videos. Yeah, we are. We've been blowing up each other's emails all day today. Okay, so where we left it prior to your coming on to the show, Rob, we were in 1988. And prior to you, your coming aboard, we had already decided that we were going to do an album deep dive on Big Thing by Duran Duran. And I'm really happy that when I told you that, you were really excited because I know you're a big Duran Duran fan, too. That is very true. Very, very true. So I am coming down off of my high, having seen them for the third time ever. This last September 1st, they were playing at Northerly Island here in Chicago. That is right. I'd almost forgotten. Tell us more. What? Tell us more. Tell us tell, more. Oh. Tell us more. It was beautiful. It was an outdoor venue right on Lake Michigan. The full moon was just coming up right behind us as they were playing Wild Boys, which is great. August moon surrendered to a dust cloud on the rise. It was freaking awesome, man. It was a great show. Sheik and Nile Rogers opened for them. They were fantastic. Oh. Along with a band called Bastille, who I'd never heard of, but I didn't hate them. And that, <laughs> for me, is a huge compliment if it's a band I don't know. A little disappointed that they didn't play any songs off of this album that we're going to talk about, though. None? No, they did not do any songs off of Big Thing. I am taken aback, actually. Yeah, but they did a lot of stuff from their first two albums. I was really pleasantly surprised. They opened with Waiting for the Night Boat. Nice. They did Friends of Mine, which is one of my all-time favorites. Also nice. And they also did Careless Memory. There you go. I almost said Careless Whisper, and I'm so like, boy, that would be, that, dude, that's getting edited out. So, no, it was it was a really, really fantastic show. I'm so glad I got to see them again. Now, if they had done Carol's Whisper, how would that have gone over for you? Yeah, that would have been a little... <laughs> well, you know, they did, they did a couple of surprising covers. They did a bit of Super Freak, which really surprised me. They segued from Careless Memory into Super Freak. And it doesn't sound like it would work, but it did. It's Super Freaky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, Ow. it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a good show. If they didn't do anything from Big Thing, I guess we're going to have to do everything from Big Thing. We are. And as a matter of fact, I think we've also got a couple little bonus tracks that you and I decided on that are from around this time period, but aren't on the Big Thing album. Oh, we went digging. We, we did. We're I... digging in the dirt. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> we're coming up. Rob, on the 35th anniversary of this album, believe it or not, it was released on October 18th, 1988, and it peaked at number 24 in the USA, which was a little bit disappointing after their previous few albums. 
Fans often refer to this as Duran Duran's house music album because they were really kind of dabbling in more of a um, acid house kind of sound. As a matter of fact, Simon Laban would call the new music on this album Duran Duran with rave music. There's acid house in that funk piano thing. Of course, in that same interview, he also admitted to taking ecstasy. So let's recap as to what was going on with Duran Duran at this point. And so our previous album deep dive for Duran Duran, we had talked about Notorious, which I know, Rob, that's your favorite album. And I did listen to the show. Oh, super. How did you like it? Well, other than you stabbing me in the heart with Proposition, I enjoyed the show rather thoroughly. Okay. Well, I, I thank you for being honest about that. So let's recap where we are right now, 1988. So guitarist Andy Taylor and drummer Roger Taylor had left the band at this point. And the band had fired their previous managers, the Barrow Brothers. For this album, the new songs were published by Duran Duran's new company called Skin Trade Music Limited. And the boys were still kind of struggling to get free of Tritech, which was the Barrow Brothers company. Also at this time, the band is now being managed by Peter Rutsch, who had previously worked with the Rolling Stones and the Who. So far, so good? So far, so good. All right. Duran Duran began recording their new album at Devout Studios in Paris, and they chose new producers, Jonathan Elias, and dance producer Daniel Abraham, who had previously worked with Madonna. Although John Taylor and Jonathan Elias had previously worked together on the soundtrack for nine and a half weeks, there seemed to be kind of a split into two different camps with Jonathan and Dick Rhodes on one side. They really seemed to have bonded over their love of synths. And John was working more with Daniel. So that kind of left Simon Laban in the middle, trying to bridge the gap between the two sides. Now, guitarist Warren Cucurillo was still not a full-fledged member of the band at this point. So he did play on every track on the album except for All She Wants Is and I Don't Want Your Love. Now, reportedly, he was frustrated and very unhappy that he was still basically considered a hired hand at this point because he was really itching to start contributing to the songwriting. And then we also have Steve Ferroni of Average White Band and Scritty Politi fame. And he did most of the drumming on the album, as far as we can tell. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey. And this is where, Rob, you and I had a little bit of back and forth over the weekend as we were discussing this. You had mentioned, you you have right in front of you right now, the album with the liner notes. And you had mentioned that there's no mention of who's drumming on it. Is that correct? There are plenty of mentions of who's drumming on the various tracks, but the name that does not appear on this on the in these liner notes anywhere that we keep stumbling across online is Sterling Campbell's name. Right, right. And according to Wikipedia, Wikipedia actually had it broken down that Sterling Campbell played on certain tracks and Steve Ferroni played on certain tracks. However, I spent my weekend going back over a number of books, including John Taylor's memoir and also a couple other books that have been written about the band. And according to all of those sources, they indicated that Sterling Campbell was the drummer during the Big Thing tour. According to John Taylor's memoir, Sterling stepped in for Stephen on the tour 
when Stephen left to work with Eric Clapton. So all of that kind of seems to indicate to me that he probably didn't play on the album, and he meaning Sterling Campbell, that he came on after the album was recorded as part of the tour. So that's my educated guess as to what the drumming situation is. And I know that Wikipedia differs on this, and I know that the Duran Duran fan wiki differs on this. I could not tell you the source of where I read this now, but I do remember in my research stumbling across a a comment that Sterling taking over on the tour was basically Steve handing the keys to Sterling. I had actually read that too in one of the biographies. So according to the book, Please Please Tell Me Now, which is an unauthorized biography of the band, Steve Ferroni wanted to move on and recommended New York drummer Sterling Campbell then 24 years old to replace him and i yeah the first video appearance of sterling i can remember is in the burning the ground video he's not in any of the videos for this album so correct and we'll we'll talk about the videos too and we'll talk about who actually is in the videos because it's really kind of interesting how they set all that up so that's where we're at right now so we've got nick rhodes john taylor simon lebon and then we've got Warren Cucurillo, guitarist, and Steve Ferroni, drums, kind of being treated as hired hands, session musicians at this point. So, hey, since you have the liner notes in front of you, did you happen to notice the dedication notes on there, Rob? I did indeed. If you're referring specifically to the ones for Do You Believe in Shape, I did indeed take note of that. And yes, I looked up all the information about that. So, okay. So, for the first time in their career, the band members decided to write personal dedication notes on an album sleeve, thanking Alex Sadkin, a producer and musical engineer who had been killed in a car crash in late 1987, Andy Warhol, who had also died in 1987, and he had become a very close friend of Nick Rhodes, and David Miles, a childhood friend of Simon LeBond's, who died of a drug overdose during the album's creation. All of that really comes out in the video, which we'll talk about later, too. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So all of the songs on the album are credited to LeBon, Taylor, and Rhodes, with one exception, which we're going to talk about, and it wasn't originally released that way. Some names were added later. I know exactly where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you do. I don't know how much I agree with it, but Yeah. And what better way to start an album called Big Thing than with a track called Big Thing? Rob, what did you think of Big Thing, the song? 
this is the one song on this whole album I'm kind of like on the fence about. I, I don't hate it, but I'm not particularly in love with it either. And yet, if you ask me what other song on this album would you have started this album off with, I, I have no answer for you other than Big V. <laughs> gotcha. It's a, it's a mixed bag for me. It is. I like the music track in general. I'm not the biggest fan of the lyrics in the world, but. Well, this is one of a couple of attempts, I think, at funk on this album. I, I kind of wonder how much Simon might have been influenced by his friendship with Michael Hutchins. Because I think there's a little bit of like the NXS kick vibe coming through in this song. I'm not a huge fan of this one. I think this is one of their weaker tracks. You know, I think it's a little cutesy and sing-songy. There's plenty of stronger tracks on this album. I I was doing my research and, you know, there's a comment from Simon that I tried to find the magazine article to back it up. I could not, of course, where he said this is not a sexual song in any way, shape or form. It's about them trying to achieve musical success, telling record companies and people, hey, this is it. Our new album's out. It's the next big thing. Pay attention to us, blah, blah, blah. Now, I'm not entirely sure exactly what lick it up, suck it up, stick it outside has to do with airplay. But, hey, you know, that's why I'm not a singer. So, The, the song was released as a promotional single limited to radio stations and clubs in order to promote the album. So it wasn't actually a single single but they released it to the radio stations and the the music venues. The single also had an acapella version of this, and I would be very curious to ever see what some DJs did with the acapella version putting in their own beats later on. Ooh, that could be fun. I could see doing a mashup of this with, like, something off of the Kick album. Anything else you want to... Okay. I was asking if you had anything else you wanted to talk about with Big Fan. Not this particular song, no. Not when there's so much goodness yet to come. Gotcha. All right, well, the next song is actually the first single off of the album, released on September 9th, 1988 in the UK, and October 15th, 1988 in the USA, and that is I Don't Want Your Love. Let's listen. This is a great choice for a first single. I really think so. It's it's so in your face right off the bat. Just the percussion comes in and just kicks. Yes. No pun intended. Uh, once again, I just I, I love this single. I, I love that the whole thing is just this almost cheap friends with benefits thing going on. Yet it's got this this groove to it that will not quit. 
I'm with you. I really like this song. I remember when I first saw the video on MTV and I thought, my guys are back, you know, because, and, and again, not to be ripping on Notorious, but it felt like they lost me a little bit, you know, in the Notorious era. You know, it was it was a little bit of a disappointment after their previous albums. But then I heard this and I'm like, yes, they're back in peak form. And this song actually went to number four on the Billboard charts. If I'm not mistaken, this was the highest charting single off of their album. You are not mistaken, four in the U.S. Only went to 14 in the U.K., believe it or not. Yeah, well, they didn't quite get the house music scene as much as we did. And, I mean, this one is really heavily influenced by house music. Don't you think? Once you get the, I think the single mix more so. I, yes. I, I, gotta, I have to give the 7-inch mix just the edge, if for no other reason, just that added instrumental bridge in the middle really kind of sets the whole record where it needs to be. I'm kind of sad that a lot of Steve Peroni's original live drum tracks got removed for the 7-inch, but yeah. there's no denying it. it is ultimately the better mix, I think, for me. I think I like the album version a little bit better, maybe because the drumming is a little bit more organic. It is a little bit more alive. But the single remix that you're alluding to was done by Shep Pettibone. Mm -hmm. And you were correct. He replaced Steve's live drums with a programmed drum machine track, among other changes. So the guitar parts on this song were played by Chester Kamen, even though in the music video we see Warren playing. So Warren was basically just miming for the video. Similarly, even though Steve Ferroni played drums on the album... The video shows David Palmer, who's the former drummer for ABC. And the dance choreography, that kind of interesting like dance fight thing that's going on between this couple, was done by Shannon Lewis. I think the video is so much fun. It's so much fun. And, you know, Nick is so cute. He, he's, he's not making any pretensions about trying to mime, and he's just kind of being quiet until he gets to the word down. And then he's just like, down and he you know it's like boom you know kind of in your face no i like i like watching nick walk into the courtroom section where he's looking around like somebody who's already paid off the jury like yeah you're nothing i uh, look at nick always seems to be in charge in like every video they ever do even if he's in prison or something there's still people bringing him technology and stuff well, yeah and uh, you know they don't call him the controller for nothing right <laughs> I think that's kind of how it is in real life. But speaking of the video, I swear, and, I, and I've even mentioned this in some of the Duran Duran forums online, and nobody's been able to confirm this, I swear that Ron Perlman has a cameo in this video. If it's not Ron Perlman, it's somebody that looks a hell of a lot like him. I mean, it's not listed in any of Ron Perlman's credits, so it might not be. But do you know who I'm talking about in the video? Ron Perlman? <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's who you're talking about. Okay. <laughs> Glad you're paying attention. So, uh, thumbs up for I Don't Want Your Love, yeah? Question on this, though. Uh, the, yeah. the one bridge. The one bridge is the one thing in here. There's a, a lyrical bridge that seems to stand out from the rest of the song. The I like noise because I like waking up there in the house. Is this a statement, do you think, in any way, shape, or form that this is what we want to do now? I like noise, waking up the house, can't sit down, can't shut my mouth. Is this a statement that you know, house music is what they want to go with? Or is it just, you know, am I overthinking it? I kind of interpreted it that way. 
I did interpret it that way, yeah. But, you know, there's something else that's kind of interesting, too. Nick had said in an interview, he was talking about when they were making the Big Thing album, we dispensed with the politeness of Notorious, and we could scream at each other again. So they, they were back to fighting with each other and tempers flaring, but this added to the creativity that this was for them part of the creative process. So I'm wondering how much of it could be that, you know, or maybe, maybe it's both. You cannot cook something to completion without fire. Ooh, I like it. I like it. Well, if you think the first track released off this album was cementing themselves into the dance world, I think this pretty much just put the nail in the coffin and made sure you know the second single off this album, which unfortunately only went to number 22 in the U.S., but here's one that actually went higher in the U.K. to number nine. All She Wants Is. this song so much you have no idea this is so much fun tell us tell us give us an idea well you know the first time i heard it the sample of the woman moaning on the beat i was a little like "Ooh, wow you know i mean granted i was like 14 maybe 15 no 15 so i you know it was like a little bit scandalous and then I later learned that during the early recording sessions, they had named this song Sex. So then that makes a little bit more sense. And I guess it went through some changes in lyrics. So much, so much fun. And boy, this is really them hitting that techno house acid kind of groove, right? I mean, of all the songs on this album, I think this is the most danceable song. The the music track on this is absolutely solid. Everything everyone's doing with the music on this is absolutely perfect. Especially the the aggressive electronic drums. Again, I love Steve Peroni. I love the work he's done with other people, even when he was with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers later. But these electronic drums they're using in this are just pumping in your face. Like if if you turn this up. And that bass starts coming through both from the percussion and from John. Oh, God, it's amazing. Yes. All Steve Peroni does on this track, according to the credits, is live snare. Okay. Can you, just, can you just see him sitting all sad in a corner with his little snare drum and one stick? Just bap, bap, bap. Hey, hey you guys, bap. It's funny. <laughs> the guitars on this one are Chester Kamen again. This is the other track that he played guitars on. He played rhythm guitar. 
I have a stat here in the liner notes that says the lead vamp guitar was played by Warren Cucurucco. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that, then that's the source that we're going to trust because my source had said he didn't play on this track. Let's talk about the video for this song. Do we have to? <laughs> yes. Yes, we have to. How can a man who made something so right go so wrong so quickly? All right, so you're talking about the director, Dean Chamberlain. Yes. Prior to this, Dean had directed the video for the Arcadia song, The Missing. Right? Is that the right one? That is the right one. It is just heartbreakingly beautiful all the way through. It it is gorgeous, and it is stunning, and it enhances the song so much. So they decided to bring him on for this video. And he's using some of the same techniques. I think he's using the same girl, too, isn't he? He might be. Oh, I don't I, know. I, I don't think know. it was the same girl in both videos. Oh, I have to go back and look. I, I did make that connection. So there's a lot of stop-motion animation with human subjects. And it was something that would take, like, hours a day. I think I read it took nearly a month to film the whole thing. Simon, Nick, and John were too busy to spend all their time on the set posing for this this animation. So what they did is they made latex masks of the boys' faces. <laughs> I love this. And they put them on mannequins. So most of the video, with the exception of the very beginning and the very end, most of the video where you see the three band members, it's actually the latex masks on a dummy. You can kind of tell. No. Yeah, there, <laughs> it, it doesn't look super great. But the story is that after they were done filming, they shipped the three masks to the band's office. And their secretary happened to be the one to open the box. And apparently she screamed bloody murder because here are the heads of the three band members in a box. Sounding like something out of like the movie Seven. The Swedish house mafia is sending a message to Duran Duran. There, there you go. There you go. Now, the clip did win a 1988 MTV Music Video Award for innovation. It was innovative. I'll give you that. I think the parts I like at the the very end where I think it is the band instead of the latex masks. And there's one where, like, John is doing this kind of hand gesture and this thing where he's rolling his eyes and it's, like, adorable. Yeah, you got the little white gloves on. Yes, yes. Like he's going to come tap dance for you or something. Oh, I wish he would. And I'm pretty sure the shot where they're at the refrigerator is is the actual band. Although I still don't know what's in that one glass they're drinking. I don't want to. Absent? Well, it would make the video make more sense. It's a hot mess, kids. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, one more thing to cut. Just so you know. Yeah. If you anagram John Taylor, it spells a horny jolt. So. I'm not cutting that. I'm leaving that. (laughs) It fits with the song. I'm leaving that. Okay, so now the album really shifts gears a little bit. And then some. Oh, yeah. The next song is a really pretty ballad. It's called Too Late Marlene. Let's give a listen. To my Every night, been making out since then. 
I'm actually very partial to the ballads on this album. I think the ballads on this album are some of the best parts of it. I know that this was supposed to be a move into house, especially the love of Chicago house that they had going on at the time. But the ballads are the ones that really hit with me here. I think there's some beautiful stuff. This, it, it just, for me, I can not explain to you 100% why just the whole song sets up this image of like a rainy night in black and white for me. And maybe it's yeah. because every time I hear the name Marlene, yeah, I follow it with Dietrich. So, okay, but I just, okay. this is a beautiful, beautiful song. Absolutely love it. it yeah, I agree with you. This is a, a gorgeous song. I think Nick's keyboard playing is top notch on this. I had read somewhere, of course, now I can't find it, but I'd read somewhere that it was supposedly written about a friend of Nick's, but Marlene was not her name. You know, it's an assumed name. I found some conflicting information actually from that. Okay. Tell me, tell me, tell uh, me. On an Ask Katie, which is the mm. thing, Dran. Yeah, you're familiar. Yeah. Oh yeah, so yeah. I, uh, she pronounces it Caddy. Oh, isn't okay. Yeah, okay. she pronounces it Caddy. Okay. Well, Simon apparently said regarding "Too Late, Marlene." This is a quote exactly. It was written about somebody very special. I'm afraid it would be ungentlemanly of me to reveal exactly who that person is. Oh, intriguing. What did you do, Simon? What did you do? I'm a huge fan of Ask Caddy. So if that's what Simon said in Ask Caddy, then that's what it is. So then my source obviously is wrong. Of course, then you could go back to possibly Nick and point that out to him. And Nick could be like, that's not why he did it at all. You know? <laughs> it could be both. That is true. It could it could be a friend of Nick's that there was also something else with Simon, right? I'm it's certainly, I mean, we can't disagree that do you believe in shame is definitely a three-part effort considering where it goes. So, but we'll get to that. Okay. So but first, yes. Anything else about too late, Marlene? I was about to ask you the same question. No, no. I, I was going to move on to the last track on side one. Oh yeah. We're getting back to that kind of techno house sound. Yeah. We're definitely picking it back up right off the bat. It's as soon as the fade out's gone. Boom. Right in your face. Drug. Subtitled, It's Just a State of Mind.
This is an interesting one. I I'm amazed to find out that this song almost broke the band. Yes. Over one song because John hated this mix on the album. Yeah, that's I had read about that too. So there's another mix of this song that's called I think it's called the Daniel Abraham mix, to be that's honest. That's simple. Yep, that's exactly it. Okay. And that was the original mix, but then the band decided to rework it as a house-influenced version. The one that you're hearing here, the house version, was remixed by Joe Dvorniak and Duncan Bridgman. And it was kind of a two-against-one, right? Nick and Simon wanted the house version. John wanted the Daniel Abraham version. And John very nearly quit the band in protest, as you said. But years later, Nick actually admitted that John was right and that the original version would have fit much better with the flow of the album. But yeah, they almost uh, almost split up over the creative differences at this point. Going back and listening to the original Daniel Abraham mix, I'm actually in agreement with John, too. I think I prefer that mix just a little more. Yeah. As far as the lyrics go, let me ask you, is this an actual drug? Is sex the drug or is Simon himself the drug? It could be sex or it could be Simon or it could be sex with Simon. I don't know. I think that they're trying too hard with this metaphor, especially with the backup singer saying, use me. You know, I I think they're trying too hard to be clever and I think it falls flat. This is the other song on the album that I think is kind of disappointing. This one in big thing. The, The two where they're kind of, trying for this rock funk fusion it they just don't work for me you know i also have to wonder it is some like it hot but i like a wet a shot at power station in any way shape or form Ooh, i didn't even catch that or is it just simon being simon and ready to you know bonk anything that has a pulse within his grasp or anything (laughs) (laughs) we know what he is all of the above right could be yeah. Just, wow. Just an interesting hill for John to stand on. But yeah, I kind of wish he'd got his way because I really do prefer that mix. Last thing I'll note here that I found during demo sessions for Big Thing, this song was first known as Take Me. Definitely a double entendre, isn't it? This may be where Simon's most hiding behind his own words in this in this album because he's being very vague. If he's hiding, he's hiding in plain sight. I mean, come on. He's not subtle about it. Well... Do you want any more drugs? Well, he did say that he was doing ecstasy around this time. So it could actually be all three. Bruh, better than, Mr. Better DJ. Than yes, yes. Flip the record over, please. I have an automated turntable that does it for me. Oh, look at you. Aren't you fancy? Well, I'm lying. I don't really, actually. The first song on side two. Oh, here we go. Yes, this is a good one. This is the third and final single from the album, which was released on April 10th, 1989. It's called Do You Believe in Shame? Do you believe in love? Do you believe in shame? Love can conquer all, then why do we only feel the pain?
Rob, do you believe in shame? I believe this. There's another song that we're about to get to shortly, which I'm I'm, I'm not going to go into yet. This, that song, and this constantly flip slots is my favorite song on this album. This is some of the most beautiful work they've ever absolutely done. It is a beautiful elegy for all three of the men who this is dedicated to. It is absolutely amazing work from them. Again, I know they were getting into the house music, but this is the material that really sings and shines on this album. What do you think? No, I agree with you. This is just a fantastic song. Simon has said that it's one of the favorite songs that he's written, and he was actually severely disappointed by its failure to chart well. I think because he put so much of himself into this song. So, as you mentioned, the song was dedicated to Simon's friend, David Miles, who died of a drug overdose. Supposedly, Simon almost phoned David on the night of his death and later considered that had he done so, he might have prevented David from going out to buy the drugs and might have saved his life. In fact, that line at the end, I believe a little part of you and me will never die. Simon has said that is specifically about David. The other song that is dedicated to David Miles that I think achieves a similar effect is Ordinary World. This is Simon at his most straightforward. It really is. Yes. Yes. When he connects on that kind of an emotional level, yeah, it's just beautiful. I also have to say I'm really glad Alex Sadkin got included in that because the Arcadia Project is still like my favorite Duran Duran project maybe ever, so... Yeah. And then, of course, Andy Warhol being the third one. And in the music video, we have like different scenes, but there's uh, Nick is at an auction and he's bidding on a snow globe. And supposedly that snow globe actually was one of Andy Warhol's. And that was his way of including Andy in the video, I guess. And the whole video is really just a reflection on loss. Now, John starts off at a little girl's birthday party. He ends up at a church. Yeah. And then, but John, I got to say, John looks like Christian Bale and the machinist in this video. He looks like he's going to really? keel over any minute. <laughs> well, and he was pretty deep into the drug use at this point. So he looked like the same mannequin from All She Wants Is, but he was moving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, John's always been very, very thin. Yeah. I think he was really. I think he was in the throes of cocaine addiction at this time. I don't think he'd been in rehab yet. And then we get that insult to injury. Not only did it not perform well, but then they got sued. That's right. CCR came after them, said that the chord progression sounded a little too much like Susie Q. I can kind of see it. I can kind of see it. They if, denied if it, listen... and I don't blame them. It's, it's, it wasn't intentional theft, according to them, anyway. Right, right. They had said that it was basically just a standard blues progression, which I'm sure it is. As a result of the lawsuit, the writing credits were changed to include Eleanor Broadwater, Delmar Hawkins Jr., and Stanley Lewis. This is their George Harrison's My Sweet Lord, completely accidental. So, It's really a shame that a song that is so personal to Simon ended up getting overshadowed because of that. Originally titled, Do You Believe in Faith, I read, too. While we're talking about side two here, Rob, you know how I kind of mentioned that the band was split into two camps at this point with the two different producers? And the result of that, I think, is that side one is really kind of more the techno housey side. 
And I think side two is more the moody ballad side. This is almost like the uh, the Wham album you mentioned in another episode where it's got the hot side and the cool side. And the cool and, like, side. Music yeah. from the edge of heaven, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize anybody was listening when I spoke. <laughs> One last thing about Do You Believe in Shame real quick. I love that it ended up on the Tequila Sunrise soundtrack as well because you know who they got to share that record with? Andy Taylor. Really? <laughs> really? I didn't know that. The single called Dead on the Money that Andy Taylor did for the sun, uh, Tequila Sunrise soundtrack, yeah. Oh, wow. I'll have to check it out. So on the subject of like dark, brooding, moody ballads, although I guess this one isn't really dark, is it? Do you want to take the next song? This, this just, if you needed something to follow up, do you believe in shame? This was the perfect choice. This is absolutely gorgeous. I guess I'm getting my opinions in early. Track seven, Palomino. Yeah, no, I love this one. This is this is one of my favorite songs by them. The best adjective I can have for this is lush. It is a lush oh, song. Did you catch that there's actually samples of whale songs in this? Yeah, it's uh yeah, right before the piano bridge, right? Again, you know, they're still experimental, but really just diving into something beautiful and deep. It's gorgeous. Simon Laban has said the song was inspired by quote. One of the beautiful girls I have known. He's always very elusive, isn't he? Never names anybody. No. Do you know the story behind the chorus? Pablo Picasso during his blue period, yes. actually. Yeah, there was, I think it was Daniel Abraham who actually brought the, the quote to their attention, if I remember correctly, where during Picasso's blue period, an interviewer asked him, well, what do you do when you run out of blue? And he said, why, I use red instead. That alone... That story alone makes me love this song even more, you know? It's such a gorgeous song. I think this is one of the high points of the album for me. Mostly uh, written by Simon and John, from what I've read, with Nick contributing his pieces here and there. But, oh, this is just one of, this is not just one of the best songs of this album. This is one of their best songs, period. I agree. I agree with you. Very underrated. This could have been a single. I think it could have been, yeah. I don't know if it would have been successful, but it should have been a single. Yeah. I've got a, a playlist of Duran Duran and Arcadia songs that's like the more mellow side of stuff. And this is one of the songs on it, as is another song that we're going to listen to in a little bit. But this is like good mood music for me. Oh, yeah. So one of the unusual things about side two of this album is there's not one but two interludes. So the next track 
is called Interlude 1, and it's about 30 seconds long. Let's listen. You told me something, Rob, that I did not know, and you said to listen to it slowed down. I went and I took this, and I listened to it at about 50% speed, and I think that's probably the speed that they recorded it at, but you can hear Simon singing in the background. It's a, a mystery song. Nobody knows what song it's from or why they chose to speed up the song. It, they, they haven't said. It's interesting, though. What do you think of this one? Very interlude I think. Uh, I, sl- I slowed it down myself. I couldn't tell what it was. I heard it professionally slowed down. I still don't know what it is. Honestly, it kind of annoys me because when I originally bought this album, I bought it on cassette because I had a Walkman surgically attached to my body for about seven oh. years. I thought it was eating my damn tape. Yeah, yeah. I'm like grasping for the stop button like, no, I just got this, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you weren't the only one. And then there's something else later on this album that frustrated me <laughs> that I thought was a technical issue. We'll get to that. I don't think there's much more to say about Interlude 1, though. <laughs> no, I think we've talked longer about it than the Interlude actually lasted. <laughs> and probably more than it deserved. <laughs> yeah, okay, so take the next song, then. It's another beauty. Like I said, we're on the cool side now. Track 9 is Land. And where does this one hit you? This is my favorite song on the album. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is so, so gorgeous. It's it's beautiful. It's a metaphor for love being, you know, home, a safe place, a shelter in the storm, right? That love is land. I think you could take it straightforward considering Simon's nautical inclinations as well. I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's it almost feels like it's if you look at it from a sailor going on a voyage, it's almost like he looks to her for safety and fidelity. What tomorrow and today you keep my landfall safe, you know? Yeah. I, I wondered honestly, if it had any connection to the drum incident to a certain degree, like if it was another song written out of that wow. happening. Right. His boating accident. Do you know they've ever performed this live? I did know that. Yes. And also that there's no demo for this song which suggests that it might have been one of the last songs they wrote for the album. 
health. They didn't slack at the end, that's for sure. I know this no. is also this is mostly Simon and Nick writing, but once again, you've got an absolute beauty here. Whether the lyrics you take them literally or figuratively, this is an absolute gorgeous song. It's what six minutes long. It does not feel like it in any way, shape, or form. No, not at all. And I almost didn't want it to end. You know, it's so. I, I'm speculating, but I wonder if maybe this might not be Simon singing to Yasmin. She'd like that. Like, well, well, no, I mean, you know, he's touring all around the world. He's traveling. You mentioned the drum incident. You know, he's sailing. We know that he's an avid boater, but always coming back home to her and to the security of that relationship. Stop writing songs like Too Late Marlene and Palomino about other women, man. Of course, maybe for all we know, all those women are Yasmin. Well, maybe, maybe. He's so cagey, you know. He's a cagey boy, that Simon. Yeah, you know, Simon was my childhood crush, right? He was not mine. I didn't think so. (laughs) Okay, so next up we have another interlude, the aptly named Flute Interlude. All right, what do you want to say about this one, Rob? It's very fluty. One's interlude one is fluty. <laughs> totally Doug fluty. yeah. We're not talking about the Miami Dolphins here. We could be. No, we're not. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a tribute to the Miami Dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't even know what these interludes are doing here. It's, 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 and I read one article, it's like, it was more, experimental than anything the band had done. I'm like, it's 64 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what they were getting at either. I, I mean, I see some shades of, not so much with the flute interlude, but with interlude one, I see some shades of Medazzaland, which was their 97 album, which I think was arguably their most experimental. So, I hate this one. I don't, I don't know. It's just an interlude. I, I'm, yeah. I don't skip it, but I'm not getting some, I, I look at, I look at this with, uh, the, the Beavis and Butthead logic of, well, it sucks, but at least it was short, you know, <laughs> at least they didn't waste our time. Right. 32 seconds. It's, it's, it's cute for what it is. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's an interlude. It's like a comedy skit on a rap album. It just is. Okay. Well, next up we have actually a two part medley i guess yeah these decks two do kind of blend into each other a little bit and uh i will take the first half here so let's walk the edge of america
yeah, once again, an absolute beauty. I, uh, I guess it's supposed to be about the fall from grace in the music industry and the charts and such, which I find amusing because it directly conflicts the message they're supposedly sending with big thing on side one, which is, hey, we're big, we're back, we're in your face. But this, once again, it's just an absolute gorgeous song. Apparently it was supposed to be longer, but ended up morphing into the cut that we'll hear next. Yes. Yeah, so gorgeous. The next half of this was actually inspired here in my city, Chicago. It's an instrumental called Lakeshore Driving. So earlier you were talking about how you thought your cassette was being eaten on interlude one. When I heard this on digital download for the first time, because I didn't own this album, I thought that the download had cut off because this song ends so abruptly, which according to Nick Rhodes, it happened because they ran out of tape in this studio. Lazy. Go load some tape, Rhodes. Yeah, so apparently this was inspired during their previous tour when they were here in Chicago and of course Chicago's famed Lakeshore Drive and this is not the first song that was written about it I saw somewhere and I I can't for the life of me remember if it was in a single or if it was in uh, a magazine or liner notes but there was a picture on the shore of Lake Michigan right off of Lakeshore Drive and I instantly recognized because I had been there many times so for whatever reason, my part of the country, our part of the country, because you're a Midwesterner too, inspired this particular song. I love the track, but oh, that cutoff. Oh my gosh. That is just so annoying. But yeah, I would, you know, apparently there is a supposedly a full length version out there somewhere. I don't know if I've actually heard it or not, but yeah, same thing. I was just like, did my Walkman just die or yeah that really yeah whatever so apparently there is a demo of the song with a complete ending that's available as a bootleg the song in its complete form runs about three minutes and 36 seconds and apparently this version was also played live on the band's big thing live tour with a lengthy extended outro as the encore now there's a bonus track called the LSD edit, which LSD is what we call Lakeshore Drive here in Chicago, you guys. It's an edited medley of both songs into a single track. And it's only got the first verse and the chorus from Edge of America. And then the instrumental fades out at the end instead of ending abruptly. I think this is actually called on the 
bonus CD, The Crush Brothers LSD Edit. And uh, I think it was the B-side for Do You Believe in Shane, if I'm not mistaken. One of the B-sides, yes. Okay. Of course, the Crush Brothers, the band was touring for a while, doing some secret shows under the name the Crush Brothers. And then people would show up and they'd find out that it was Duran Duran. So they were doing like some very intimate, you know, smaller venues being booked as the Crush Brothers. That was another track they sent out to stations and clubs, too, to promote the album. Oh, was it? Yeah, to try to keep them away from the fact, oh, it's Duran Duran, we're not going to play it, so. Oh, well, and there was unfortunately a lot of that going on in 88. I mean, even me as a fan, I was kind of moving away from Duran Duran and moving more towards the alternative spectrum. You know, it wasn't cool. It wasn't really cool to like Duran Duran in 88, I'm ashamed to say. I mean, now, of course, you know, I listen to it. I love it. I love this album. I like this album better than Notorious. I know you disagree. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Well, honestly, this is where I think maybe our age differences, just even the slight age difference we have come into play, because I got to probably experience a lot more of disco than you did. So that, for me, was just, going back in time a couple of years okay with notorious but that's okay i like this album too overall like i said big thing and uh the interludes not my favorite thing drug could be a little better but there's a lot of solid material it's a schizophrenic album for me it doesn't seem to know what it wants to be but each piece works on its own very very well so that's actually the end of the big thing album but rob you and i have dug deep into our personal music archives and we found a couple other songs from this time period that we think our listeners would like to hear. Especially if they never have. I was going to well, say, first one was your choice. Yeah, this is the B-side to All She Wants Is. This is just gorgeous. This is There's an edit on the B-side to All She Wants Is, and the full version was later released on the deluxe edition of Big Thing. It is called I Believe All I Need to Know Medley. This is one of my favorite B-sides of theirs ever. I absolutely, it's very moody. I really like it. It's got some of my favorite lyrics, I think, ever on a B-side. Specific, I was tempted by the devil in his deep blue swimming pool until the devil's makeup ran. I love that line. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again because I wasn't really listening to the lyrics. I just got hung up on the harmonica, which is really out of place for a Duran Duran song. That harmonica's sexy and you know it. <laughs> this is another one that is also on the, the box set, the, the bonus CD. 
never listen to it. Of course, the version that we just listened to wasn't the one in the box set. The one in the box set's longer. What we just listened to was the B-side of the single, wasn't it? Yeah, the instrumental breaks are a lot longer on the full version. Gotcha. So the next song is actually from earlier in 88, and this was Simon's first solo project. It's a Simon Laban and Nick Wood single called Grey Lady of the Sea. Let's listen. Provado is all but gone And patience is down You scared us and you turned us around But you won't let us try because when we lie asleep, we'll be dreaming of you. Love, relate and blow your ships back home. Blow your ships back home. Blow, lady, green, lady, green, relate. So I know you've heard this one before, Rob. It's maybe more obscure. I think only the most hardcore Duran Duran fans would know this one. But what do you think of Grey Lady of the Sea? I'm a little surprised they sat on it for two years before deciding to release it as a single. This was originally written back in 86 for the uh, the drum documentary that Simon did. And I think they only released it, what, in the UK and Japan, which is kind of puzzling. But like you said, Duran Duran wasn't hit by 88. This is a seafaring song for sure. There's no question about it. This is pure and simple Simon's experience on the on the water. So it almost it feels like a sailor's prayer to ancient gods to keep them safe almost. There you go. Very accurate. Very accurate. And you mentioned it was for the documentary soundtrack of Drum the Journey of a Lifetime. And of course, Simon's boating accident that nearly cost him his life that we talked about in another episode. One thing we only want to mention about Nick Wood yeah, is that he and Simon went on to form a studio in Tokyo. Did they really? I didn't know that. SYN Productions, yes. Oh, and uh, SYN Productions released the single in the UK. Ta-da! Comes full circle. All right, and then the last one, which I confess I'd forgotten about until you mentioned it, Rob. Yeah, this was originally conceived during the Big Thing sessions. It didn't end up making it in, and it wasn't released until about a year or two later on an album that Jonathan Elias, one of the producers of Big Thing, ended up doing as a solo project. It is called Follow In My Footsteps. Witness to the spirit of your sunrise. Call it 
It's an interesting piece. Yeah, I hear a familiar voice in the background. That is Susanna Hoffs, indeed. Yes, Susanna Hoffs from the Bangles. And not to mention, you've got Warren on guitar and Steve Peroni once again on drums here. So you've got a lot of the band back together. Yeah, well, and that was actually true, I think, of a lot of the songs on this album. So the album was called Requiem for the Americas, Songs from the Lost World. And I think it was conceived as like a Native American-inspired album. Yeah, like a tribute to the indigenous people of the Americas, yes. Right, which is really kind of interesting because so many of the people involved are not American. <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's an interesting project. It's an interesting album. And I think all of the band members contributed to it at some point. I know John did. I think Nick might have. Yeah. Not Nick, sure on that one. I think I'm trying to remember the name of the track Nick worked on. But yeah, he is there. So it's it's an interesting, again, kind of obscure album. I mean, unless you were specifically looking for it. I, I don't know. A lot of Duran Duran fans even know it. it. Apparently, it was originally entitled I Am the Medicine, and it was early in development, which actually the medicine became the name for one of the bigger Duran Duran bootlegs floating around out there. I didn't know that either. So there you go, listeners. We've got some tracks that you might not have heard before. And maybe you have and just forgotten about them, but uh, special treat for you. Rob, what are we doing for our next episode? We're going to be on the International Podcast Day. That's what we're doing for our next episode, showcasing videos. Did we decide what we're going to do after that for our next are we going to do the church or are we going to do Jane's Addiction? Are you comfortable enough with the church to do it? I mean, I don't know how much you know or have listened to Starfish, honestly. But Honestly, I don't think I've listened to it since 88, but I'm happy to dig it out and listen to it again. It's been a while for me, so we would at least be both on fresh territory if you'd like to do Starfish. All right. All right. Well, then let's do it. That'll, that we'll do uh, Starfish by the church. Hey, well done. Thank you so much for taking over co-hosting duties. Fantastic first episode. This is, you know, the nice thing about this is it, I, I was stressing about it. Like, oh, I hope I can, you know, keep up with Lori and everything. But once you get into it, it's just fun. It is fun. a lot of fun to do. And yeah. And not to mention the fact I will bore your pants off talking about 80s music anytime you like. So this is a perfect opportunity for me to spread my beautiful 80s disease to the world. So uh, I want to say thank you to our listeners. Hope you check us out for International Podcast Day on September 30th. Again, check our Facebook or check the episode description because there's a link. You have to RSVP. You get to see our smiling faces. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I'll dress nice that night. <laughs> this is where we say goodbye. So goodbye for me. Goodbye for me, too. Thank you for being our friends out there. Thank you for being a friend. I'm glad you listened until the end. <laughs>